0: Repeat after me. The core is no more. <laughs> or at least its future will be one of deconstruction, breaking out different elements into APIs to provide the new and essential experiences customers want. To explain what that future looks like and how they're shaping it, Miguel Santos and Dave Foyer of Galileo stopped by to chat with Darmish Mystery here on Dave and Darm. Demystify.
1: From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Dom Demystify Show. the Dave and Darm Demystify show, making a sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery.
2: Demystify. Welcome to the Dave and Darm Demystify show. And this week, it's only me, Darmish. But I do have two very special guests, which I'm really excited to speak to. Miguel Santos and Dave Foyer from Galileo. Guys, would you like to give a very brief intro to yourself?
0: Sure. Thank you, Darm. My name is Miguel, as you said, many people call me Mike because I'm half Spanish, half British from origin, now living in Madrid, but I am the founder of Technicis, a company SoFi acquired, and then we merged along with Galileo. And uh, nowadays I'm chief of strategy for Galileo, also working a lot with David here in the future
3: of our platform. So glad to be here. Hey, I'm Dave Foyer. I joined Galileo about 10 months ago as the chief product officer. So I'm in charge of the product set across both Galileo and Technicis And super excited to be here. Super excited to work with Mike, who brought me on and has a really, really awesome vision for where. The cyberbank products are going in the future which is actually part of my reason for joining i'm super excited about what we've got in store so glad to be here
2: fantastic look i know you guys have got quite a broad range of products in the market but we're not really going to go into like everything that you do obviously my hot space is kind of banking as a service right and what i'd be quite interested to find out, get your opinions on is what should banks be doing today You could give me a couple of answers based on if it was a tier one bank or if it was a very small credit union, right? Should they all be doing banking as a service? Should they all be, you know, competing with NEOs, with mobile apps? I mean, what kind of advice or direction would you give to a bank today?
3: Want to take that, Damien? Sure. I think my first take would be, I don't want to say none of that matters because, of course, it does matter. But in the end of the day what customer are you focused on serving and how are you servicing them? I think that's really the question. The biggest challenge banks have today is because we're not a new industry and because we have so much legacy technology and structures around compliance and regulatory reporting and sort of processes and all sorts of legacy architecture and applications that do need to be modernized, we have a tendency to really think about our back end and think inside out, thinking on the inside of the bank and how do we expose things and how do we modernize things internally at the bank? And what I would say is the number one challenge in banks today is not to think that way. It's really to think about like, who's the customer? What are the experiences you're trying to support that customer with? And how do you build or facilitate building those experiences through partnerships and exposing, you know, different modalities and an omnichannel approach and all of that. And so what I would say is whether you're a big bank or a small bank, you need to figure out who's the customer and how are you servicing them? And then ask the question, how do I ideally build a stack internally to support that? Rather than thinking, let me look at my stack. How do I modernize it? Where am I going internally in terms of technology roadmap? That's a little bit of a myopic view, and it misses sort of the big picture, which is as a bank, my job is to create and service customers. How do I do that? My view would be, yes, I think all banks should be thinking about Bass, I think all banks should be thinking about Technology as a strategic enabler, but enabling what? So I would say start with a customer problem and then solve the technology problem to support that and your future customer problems rather than starting with the technology. Cool. To that,
0: I would also add the following as I'm particularly amused about the discussions of who should own the customer experience. You know, there's people saying, okay, banks should go only above the glass and own the customer experience. And there's other people saying, oh, no, 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 no. Banks should only go below the glass and actually let the customer experience for the big tech or the retailers or the service providers and everything's going to end up in embedded banking situations where banks are just in the back end and below the glass. I don't think there's going to be like a Spotify moment that leads us to that situation. I think Financial services is such a big market. The customers are very different, you know, even from retailers to small entrepreneurs, e-commerce companies, physical commerces that need to go out on the street selling, big corporations, economic groups. It's infinite, really, And from the product perspective and the specialization perspective. So I think the advice to banks is really also, besides what Dave is saying about understanding what niche, what kind of customer you want to go after, it's also very important to be able to tailor products to better serve those customers. The age of differentiation on the user experience is pretty much over. We reach a plateau. And I think all the differentiation will be on the product set, on the convenience, on the time to market, on how smart those products are or those offerings are. How deep we can go and solve the problems to our customers, depending on the regulation of each country, which, of course, you know, we need to take into account. But I think all the focus will be differentiating on the offering to be able to serve those specific needs. It's going to be interesting the next 20 years for the industry. Hopefully we get a, a good position and a good spot to play. I think we're bringing really interesting stuff to the market that hopefully we'll have a chance to comment uh, just a minute later.
2: A, I think you're right about embedded services because, you know, so many people think that, oh, this is like the telcos, you know, there's lots of people selling mobile telephony packages, broadband packages, you know, but there's a few people providing the pipes and that's where the banking is going to go. But actually banking consists of very different products, not just this consistent line of bandwidth, right? I totally agree that... Really, what's going to happen is people that will focus on niche, specialize on those niches and provide a very differentiated service. Yes, it's banking embedded inside of it, etc. But they found a customer audience and they fine tuned to kind of hit home the key pain points for those customers. Right. At the same time, you also mentioned about products. And now I've had this conversation with Brett King this week on Twitter. And he was saying, look, you know, I've been saying banks have to modernize their core because they're lacking innovation in products. He said exactly the same thing, by the way, that, you know, customer experience is important, but it's not the differentiator. It's now the personalized products. Now, playing devil's advocate, right? My view is, well, yeah, but in the last 30 years, right, in my kind of working career, how many new products have there been? What I can count is like two. The offset mortgage some 20 odd years ago and more recently in the last five years or so buy now pay later right and obviously one of the challenges of personalized products is the terms and conditions getting staff to be able to sell the products and service them as well right so there's a people element but i'm keen to hear your perspective on this what do you see that i'm not seeing on the product side of things for banks
0: yeah look we have a customer that is exploiting the track business and all their customers are drivers. So small businesses on the transport industry. And these guys, you know, create specific products just as flash loans to assist the trucker when they blow a tire, it's like 10K per tire. So <laughs> they need access to a, and really fast to those limits. And typically they don't have those limits in personal credit cards. So they need specific product tailored for that. Right. And it's a way of integrating, okay, we need to integrate... The scoring capabilities to be super fast, we need to integrate, of course, the ability to create the loan, the ability for the installments on a convenient basis, typically tied to the revenue projection. And there you have a specific product for a specific audience. And that is exactly where I think we will be going, creating these cool experiences and very practical experiences to serve our customers the best.
2: I mean, I do think that's a really great example. And what more banks need to see is examples like this. I mean, we had an interview with a client that basically services the hotel market, and they did a product specifically for the hotels and the restaurants that they served as well. And it was a really interesting thing because their goal wasn't to sell them more financial products. Their goal was to understand where their customers were spending the money, right, so that they could then – target them with new products and services, knowing that this money is going elsewhere unless we know that they need these things. So I thought it was a really clever use of embedded finance. But I guess, and again, you know, having been in one of the incumbent core vendors in the past, you know, most of the core vendors would say that, yeah, we've got a really flexible product engine. What is it that you're doing different? And what do you think is the problem with the product definition then in existing legacy systems or even from some of the incumbents we're doing
0: two things one of course from the pure technology perspective i think we put together a really interesting model of primitives that can be very very tiny you know microservices that can be orchestrated into more complex products and more complex processes in general and by doing that, it's not just a product factory, but, you know, new combinations of these set can, you know, quickly launch to the market. That provides a set of flexibility, not only to be able to create these new products, but also to extend the platform to new horizons and to make it future-proof, yeah. right? So that's for the pure architecture design. And I think that was one of the breakthroughs of the company in the past. But right now we're doing another super interesting thing, which is, you know, cutting this core by the slice and starting to put together capabilities on the cloud, which is, I think, the one thing that can also be very, very differentiating. And for that, I'm going to pass it to Dave because I think he's the mastermind of that
3: project. Sure. If I think about what the difference is, I think. If I take a step back, we talk in technology a lot about decomposition, and decomposition journeys and taking the monolith and breaking them up into, you know, VMs or microservices or serverless and function service and kind of these ever evolving small units of value that allow us to build all this flexibility into technology. And that's the path that all the third generation cores have been on. And we're no exception, of course, you know, we're built very nimbly and agile and cloud native and all of that. But I think The real difference is when we start to talk about if there's decomposition happening on the technology side, there can also now be a decomposition on the business side. Whereas before all these cores were monolithic and sort of had all these products lumped together as a larger application, what we can start to do is say, we're an API first core. We can build things API first and decompose the user journeys. And so we can start to say, if you want an SMB checking deposit product, We can create an API for just that and sell just that. And you don't need to worry or think about the core. You just want SMB deposits. You want an SMB DDA account, or you want SMB lending. You just want that. We can create an API, a Galileo API with the core on the back end, of course, but you don't have to think about the core. All you think about is that API. All you pay for is that API. So your TCO goes down, you get the functionality you work. And in the context of a larger bank, you might think, well, the bank really needs everything, you know, deposits, lending, money movement, etc., across all retail and commercial facilities. And that's fine. But I think most financial services companies are not banks. And we're seeing, you know, this plethora of embedded finance where we've got companies like T-Mobile offering a checking account and Starbucks having billions of dollars on a digital wallet. And so as we start to think about embedded finance and what the play is there, I think we're starting to see that the future is not the monolithic core. The future is the decomposed core. And so our ability to offer that functionality as individual services allows companies, again, you know, back to what we were talking about earlier, to focus on the customer and the customer experience. And how do I take that capability and get that to the customer versus how do I modernize my back end? with newer technology. And so by creating these capabilities, you know, we shipped the BNPL API in January, and six weeks later, we were able to ship an SMB lending API. It's a CNI loans API that we have that's currently in pilot that we would never have shipped had we not built the BNPL API. But now that we have that, we're starting to see these future capabilities simply come along because we have this model of building API first, shipping API first, and then selling by capability versus thinking about, How do I create a massive back-end on-premise software monolith, which is sort of the old way of thinking? So it forces our customers and us to think customer first and to think experience first. And what it also does is enables our customers to really build and drive new value propositions, whether they're banks or whether they're neobanks or fintechs or whether they're third parties, because they know what they need and they can go get it versus thinking about the massive IT project of enhancing or replacing what they already have. They can simply get the API, use it, integrate it, get to market, drive customer value and iterate from there. And so there's new thinking and that's a new model. I mean, that's not something that exists today in core banking. And so we're super excited to be driving that forward. And. You know, we hope to be releasing new APIs on a quarterly, if not monthly basis, so that as these APIs are built and we're able to create these new value propositions, we can bring them quickly to market. You know, I mentioned... SMB checking or retail checking. And of course, that's something that does go back. But you had hinted about innovation. And, you know, we do see a whole bunch of innovation around secure cards and credit building. We're seeing more save now buy later products, right? Like acorns. And, you know, we're seeing more fleet management products, like Mike mentioned, and red cards to accommodate the gig economy and gig economy workers. We're seeing risk modeling at an unprecedented scale, being able to really use real-time data, And consortium data so data across multiple different application services and customers to be able to drive better risk model decisioning and i think across all of those there's this common thread of the internet and being able to use data at scale and being able to use ml and data in a safe way so you can use multiple data sources but keep that data extremely private and of course very anonymous so that you don't end up sharing anything you don't want but using that data to the customer's advantage and not just to the provider's advantage. And I think that's the common thread we're seeing here. So as we start to sell by capability, we can also start to say, hey, how much are customers borrowing for our lending API? How much are customers looking to borrow for our buy now, pay later product? And how many rejections are we seeing and why? And what are the underlying reasons? And where are those customers going? Are they going to ultimate providers? And all of that. So I think you know being able to look at selling by capability in the context of data and really how to use data and ML safely and working for the consumers, particularly for doing things like secured cards and credit building is new and it's innovative and it's super exciting. And so that's really where we're headed.
0: Yeah, for example, we have another customer in Brazil doing something pretty crazy. They created a wallet. This is a good idea for the folks in the audience because I think this is a global opportunity (laughs) to be able to pay for tolls and parking aggregating everything, every single provider there. So just imagine the convenience of that as a driver.
2: Yeah, I think for a number of banks, the space of wallets is going to be very, very competitive. We're only at the beginning of the journey with wallets, but let's say that for another day. I do like this. Your differentiation is kind of like the breakdown of a core into a lot more services each of which you can just consume as you need them, no need to install the monolith anymore. I love that really because if you're a FinTech, you know, setting up a call (laughs) normally take you several months and before you get to use the tiny piece that you want to, now you can just call it in the cloud. That's all fantastic. Just off the top of my head. So some of the vendors would say, look, we've been doing cloud for several years, right? Is your solution like a multi-tenant for multiple banks? It's like one version of the software. Runs from multiple banks or a single country?
3: How do you do it at the moment? You know, I guess the first piece is that we do have regional launch packs. So we have metadata that allows us to treat each country and associated localization and internationalization challenges separate from others. And that includes things like, user-specific journeys. It's not just language translation, right? There's journeys that exists in multiple markets. And it's worth mentioning, you know, we have customers in the same markets, for instance, take Brazil or Colombia that, you know, on one hand, we have banks that are targeting the young urban Henrys that are really cool digital early adopters, you know, sort of the forward-thinking banks. And then we've got customers that are focusing on Rural sort of agriculture-oriented microloans and those kinds of apps. And they're completely different user journeys, right? So how do you start to think about those different subsegments even in the same market? And so it's really not necessarily just about a country-by-country country differentiation, but it's also within that country, what are the sorts of user journeys and things we need to accommodate in order to make this work for the customers? So we do have this regional launch bank pack, which allows us to create and separate metadata from the core data and the core The other thing that I would say is the way we've built the core, it can certainly run on premise. It can also run in a customer's private cloud. We support the top cloud providers. I think right now we're five or six cloud providers, but of course, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and then some other more bespoke cloud deployments and installations that customers require which allows for a lot of flexibility and customers to be able to manage everything themselves for the customers that do want more control and do want to be able to, let's say, go in and modify the product at a very deep level. And then we have the selling by capability, which is really our ability to offer this as a managed service, where we're not offering core as a managed service, we're offering the specific functions as a managed service. And so that's a very different model where the core actually is no longer a core, and it simply becomes API products representing the functions of the core. And so that's the path we're on is it's really a bifurcated path. One is that we recognize where we are in sort of the arc of technology and where our customers are and so many of them need the core either in their own private cloud installation or on-premise and the other is we've got a bunch of customers that have said you know what we don't want to replace our core right now but we really want a new product that does x y or z right and of course many of those are non-banks yeah so for those customers we want to be able to accommodate them as well and so right now we're taking both paths In the future, if I had to look many decades from now, I think all of this is sold by capability. And this whole view of a core is as antiquated as the mainframe. But we're nowhere close to that. And we have to be where our customers are and we have to be where the market needs us. And so we're accommodating as many paths as possible. Yeah, then just take into consideration
0: the type of customers we serve are pretty broad in range. So we can serve a startup fintech just starting up a wallet or a simple product, and on the other side of the spectrum, we can serve you know one of the giants in Brazil or Colombia or the U.S. So that's a pretty wide range, and I think we were able to accommodate for them with these three flavors that we have. But I agree with Dave. I think if we Fast forward, I don't know, 20 years, I'm more inclined
3: also to think there's going to be everything by capability, by the slice. Cool. The other thing that this does, Mike, is you know there was this big shift where sort of branch banking, right? The branches had a lot of independence and their ability to decide who to lend to and why and what because they sort of knew their region and were able to make those decisions best. And then, of course, they had to report to headquarters, but there was a lot of independence. And I think what the mainframe did was took a lot of that independence away from the branches and pulled it into headquarters. So things like credit decisioning and business model decisions and all that ended up happening at the headquarters, which had advantages from an IT efficiency perspective and from a reporting perspective, But the branches started to suffer because the branches couldn't make independent decisions and different regions had different needs. And I think what selling by capabilities does for us, and in fact, actually, I think what the software itself today does for us is it allows us to go back to creating that in-country experience and in-country independence where we're going to have customers that have unique needs and they're going to need to tailor the product to meet those needs. And we want to be there for them. So how can we inject that innovation and that independence back into the customer that they've been held back by in the past and so we think a lot about that right like at what level is it appropriate to give access to those primitives that Mike mentioned before. At what level do we want them to modify the product? On one hand, we wanna say, oh, we want them to modify it very deeply. And on the other hand, it's like, well, it's a product, not a framework. So if they modify it too deeply, how are we gonna support that? So figuring out what that is, is a lot of what we wrestle with internally. And we think we've got a really great, unique proposition that gives that independence back to financial institutions to be able to do these really cool, really innovative things on their timeline the way they need. And so the selling by capabilities thing is just an extension of that. It's how can we even further get them that independence because they want this piece of value or that piece of value. They don't necessarily want the whole software package.
2: Cool. Let's change tack slightly and it would be remiss of me not to talk about the hot topic of the moment or the year or the end of last year, right? You guessed it, it's generative AI. Are you doing anything in this space? Because like everybody's doing something in generative AI, right? So is yours a generative core, or what are you doing with generative AI?
0: Oh, that's a good one. And we're not doing, we just shipped products.
3: The great news is that generative AI is nothing new to us. We've been shipping two products specifically, but I'm going to talk about one right now, which is Connecta, where we've been building a generative AI natural language processing platform that we built into an intelligent digital assistant. We've been shipping that for years. We build our own transformers and we've built our own technology and we beat a lot of the more publicly available technology and head-to-head comparisons frequently. And we're constantly measuring ourselves against them because I would love to not have to build this and to use off-the-shelf technology, but frankly, our technology is better. So we've got that, that exists, it's deployed. We have many customers using it globally. They're using it for multiple different tasks. I think the two main ones are for customer service to help solve customer problems in a more personalized way because the banks and financial institutions that use this expect to project their brand and the modality in which they talk to customers. And so being able to create this sort of empathy in the engine and be able to respond to customers the way customers are speaking to them, but also reflect the brand of the bank. So being a little more formal or a little more young and cool or whatever the brand is, right? That's something we ship today. And so that customer service oriented solution is one of the ways customers are using it. The other way is we're seeing the next generation of financial advice. And I don't want to say robo advisor because, you know, robo advisors are created by Vanguard, you know, 45, 50 years ago. This is really something different where somebody may have a question or there may be a proactive notification that the intelligent chatbot can go suggest to a customer. And it's sort of like, what's a way to do that that's casual and doesn't feel like some formal inquisition from a financial advisor, but rather as somebody that's almost like a friend that I can turn to and ask a question to. And well, here's some other common ways of dealing with, you know, I have excess cash my account i may need to prepare for an oncoming purchase whatever those sorts of things are and offering advice in a way that feels natural and feels like something that's much more acceptable that's a next generation of robo advisor right it's a next generation of customer service where rather than just responding to problems you're also being proactive about helping customers and really driving that conversation but using ai and that's something that we ship today we've shipped it for years it's constantly improving but it's really awesome
2: and what are your customers saying about this? I mean, yes, I've seen a number of bots out there and they tend to be you know, almost replacements for internet banking or I've actually got them inside internet banking, but what are your customers saying about your service?
3: Mike, you want to take Yeah, sure, I
0: think they're super happy. Of course, it's a relatively new concept, but we have customers where this tool actually replaced the previous generation bots this is a multi-channel tool, so it can understand messages through SMS, WhatsApp, Messenger, you know, Telegram, different messengers. It can understand emails. It can understand videos. It can understand voice messages or even natural language calls straight away. Right. And contention level, for instance, I'll give you numbers of a recently launched customer. We are talking about the few million users and contention level is up north 80% with just, I think it's four weeks. So just imagine when this gets to a year. Right. If you can think about containment getting to, I don't know, maybe 90s, 95, or even higher. And you know what? This also has a component, a feature, actually it's an engine. We call it Empathic Engine because it's a combination of a few models, right? We use TensorFlow for natural language. We use LLMs for different things. And we use this Empathic Engine to be able to detect when the customer, specifically when he gets angry. Right, right, right. And that's where automatically we offer the customer to go to a human assistant, but instead of sending to a call center with no story and no past, we send it to a specialist on that problem within the bank. With all the history condensed by AI in like two minutes reading. Wow. So that created a lot of happiness in customers and, of course, in our customers because we are really solving the problem. We are really solving the problem. And all the frustration that we saw in the previous generation bots these past years is actually gone. So this is actually working. You know, it's a pretty interesting inflection point regarding automatic customer support.
2: Is it the empathy piece that's made a big difference? I mean, what's made the big difference from what bots were like before to today where they're a lot more accepted and useful?
0: Yeah, I think it's three things. I think, first of all, what's called the intention analysis got really much better. So we can really be more accurate, understanding what the customer wants. Mm-hmm. In the other part, I think that our model, after a few years of training and understanding the typical problems of a banking customer, really got populated with a lot of solutions. And unlike LLMs, because many people get confused about using LLMs for customer support, customer support needs to be authoritative, need to tell you the truth. You know what you can do when you lost your card and you're in the middle of a trip. What's the solution for that? I mean, it cannot be a guess or I don't know, make a payment for me. I mean, it cannot be sending money to someone else, right? It's got to work. So with these few years, I think we got to a level where we actually know pretty much in the 90% of the problems, of the typical problems the banking customer would have. So that model, I think, has a lot of intelligence and eventually cross the critical mass when serving customers. And the third situation, besides the aquatic engine, which is a cool feature, I'll give you that, but probably I don't think that it represents the breakthrough here. But I think the usage of large language models to really, you know, understand the problem and condense the history of the customer, I think is also a feature that accelerated the solution a lot when a human needs to interact with the problem. So... With all those features combined, I think we got to a point to really reach happiness on the customer side and much less frustration. And I think that's the one thing that really changed it here
2: compared to the bots. Fantastic. Listen, guys, I knew that you had a lot of products and services, but we're rapidly running out of time. And I knew we couldn't cover everything that you guys do because you've covered a lot of ground. But is there any last minute advice that you would give to banks in their journey going forward, whether it's on generative AI or changing their core?
3: Sure. I'm always worried about sounding like I'm repeating the same message over and over, but in my conversations with banks, the thing I constantly have to underscore is we've got great technology and we've got great products that take that technology and make it easily usable by the bank. But what problem are you trying to solve? Can we focus on the customer and focus on the problem? Because at the end of the day, I see banks doing a lot of technology projects that don't impact the customers. And so what happens is there's quite a bit of cost. There's a slowdown in rollouts and customers don't get that feeling that the brand is there for them and constantly trying to tailor themselves to customers and be there for the customer and all of that. And so the one piece of advice I'd have is focus on the problem and what technology and infrastructure you need to solve that problem versus thinking about the technology in sort of a vacuum where things can get wrapped up into a technology project. And then you lose sight of the customer and the customer experience and what the impact is. Because at the end of the day, our job is really to serve the needs of customers. And that's how we grow as a business. And that's how we drive new value in the market. And so as I think about innovation and LLMs and all of these concepts around AI and data and great technologies and selling my capability. It's all about putting the bank in a position of power to drive solutions for customers and to create new customers and drive solutions for new customers that they may not be addressing today. So the one piece of advice I'd leave you with is please focus on the customer and then call us and we'll gladly discuss with you how we can help.
2: I love that. Thank you so much. Dave and Miguel, and hopefully we might get you on again and talk a bit more about some of the other areas. Really appreciate your time today, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Darren. Thanks.
1: Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dan Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Dom Demystify Show is a production of NMD+, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.